I think it's that I'm good at finding the white space in things. So I see an opportunity, I see an opening. And if it's something that I feel like I can fill, I then start making moves to make that happen. I'm very patient. And I think that that's something that if you're going to survive in this world professionally, patience is so crucial because sometimes things take a long time. You know, you have to plant the seed and sorry for the cliche, but like, you know, you plant the seed and you have to wait and put that energy out there into the world and create relationships. And so I'm always working on something. And I would say I'm not successful at everything. (laughs) You know, you try something and you realize like, oh, I'm not great at YouTube. Although you'd think, you know, I'm on TV all the time. I should have a successful YouTube channel. I do not. And so I'm not resonating on YouTube, but I do well on Instagram. And like, I have my blog and my site and, you know, so finding those opportunities, trying them out a little bit, seeing what works. And I think that's what pivoting is all about is being able to sit in quiet and look at your life and look at your career and say like, am I good here? Or what am I going to do? Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new season of Start Right Here. We are the podcast that puts the spotlight on the career paths of BIPAC beauty professionals, entrepreneurs, and creatives, as well as issues related to beauty and inclusion impacting us in the industry, as well as impacting consumers. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope that conversations on this show help fuel your path to success. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Trey Bosch, founder of Trey Bosch Media and TrueTay.com to the show. Now, Trey, we mostly know her right now as a smart shopping and retail expert and a lifestyle journalist. But the truth is, Trey has deep roots in beauty. And I think we all would benefit from hearing about her amazing career path and how she has mastered the art of the pivot. She has been on more than 1,000 TV segments. So you've probably seen her before. And we're going to learn how she does what she does and when she knows when it's time to change. Welcome, Trey. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. Before we start talking about your career path, let's begin with some fun questions in our For the Love of Beauty section. So what's the first beauty product you ever purchased or tried? Well, tried would be at my mom's store. You know, we had lotions and shampoos and soaps and all that stuff. We used to custom scent them for people and mix and match fragrances. And so that was like my coming up, but I probably purchased something that she didn't have. So it was probably mascara, I would say. Okay. What's the latest beauty product you try? While I'm not in the beauty industry fully, I do write about beauty and especially on my Instagram and my partner with beauty brands and do integrations and things like that. So I'm trying new things all the time. I'm right now testing Olay, which is a skincare brand that I really love. They have a new vitamin C and peptide 24 collection. So I'm trying those products right now. 
And then I'm also trying Essence has some amazing mascaras. They're Lash Princess mascaras. There's like six of them. So I'm (laughs) trying them all. So that's what I'm playing with right now. Oh, that's fun. And finally, what's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? So live by is always take good care of your skin, sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen all year long and do masks and baths and scrubs and all of it because your skin will thank you for it. And that is my beauty advice that I live by. And then in terms of leave alone, I just try not to worry about what other people are doing. I mean, a lot of women my age are doing injectables and fillers and things like that. And I'm on TV and I should probably be more worried about that or in dyeing their hair, no judgment, but I'm going to live this way for now. And so don't worry about what the Joneses are doing is what I would leave alone. Yes, 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 yes. I love that, Trey. Let's start with your time in beauty. Do you think it was a destination or a detour? It was a destination. When I was growing up, I always thought that I would live a life in beauty. My mom owned a small boutique in the town where I grew up in northern Massachusetts. And I thought, I'll run a store, I'll be a makeup artist, I'll be a hairstylist. So it was absolutely where I thought I was going to land. And here I am not in beauty so much anymore. And it still surprises me. Yeah. Did you work at your mom's store in the boutique? I did. I worked there basically my whole childhood until I left home for college at 17. And so I had amazing experiences there learning about customer service and merchandising and ordering and all of that. It was a fantastic learning experience for me. Great. So one of your first jobs, I guess in New York, was at the bespoke beauty brand Visage. First, tell us about the job there and then tell us what you learned there that set you up for success later. Sure. So Visage was an incredible company back in the early 90s. So now I'm dating myself now, founded by this incredible, dynamic man who I believe is no longer with us, actually. He wanted to create a brand that allowed specialists to custom make beauty products for our clients. And so I started working there. I was very young. I mean, I was maybe 20 and I served as a lab technician there. So I actually got to hand make makeup. I pressed eyeshadows. I blended lipsticks. I made face powders. It was an incredible experience. I worked there both in Massachusetts and then in New York at Bergdorf Goodman. And I think there were many things that I learned there that set me up for success, especially attention to a job well done. And then also creating lasting relationships with clients, with buyers. These things, I've carried them with me through my whole career. You know, if you're in beauty and you've been beauty in a long time, you're familiar with the brand, but a lot of people don't know about it. And it was an amazing brand. And it was one of the first kind of like bespoke experiences. I remember it in Bergdorf and it was so different from everything else that was around at the time. Yeah. And I realized even then what a special opportunity it was. And we would be at the counter blending the perfect lip gloss for a client. I mean, what an amazing experience that was and helping women feel beautiful. Just 
it was very joyful, but also kind of stressful. It was one of the first independently owned beauty brands starting at the same time as Bobby Brown and her table of, I believe, seven lipsticks at Bergdorf Goodman. So it grew very, very quickly. It was bought out by Revlon very early, and they just could not figure out what to do with this brand. And so it was a pretty meteoric rise, a pretty dramatic crash and burn as well. And then during the crash and burn, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to find my next thing. And there was this counter there at Bergdorf Goodman. It was the Kiehl's counter. And Kiehl's seemed very familiar to me because it was kind of similar to what my mom carried in her boutique, the similar kind of products and everything. So I stocked them for a few months calling very regularly. Hey, you hiring at the store? And finally they said, oh, just hire that girl who keeps calling. So persistence pays off. (laughs) Yes. Closed mouth doesn't get fed. You have to ask for what you want. So that's a good lesson there as well. But I wanted to ask you this time, you're an English major, but you're also a painter. So did you start painting before or after you worked at Visage? I was an artist as a kid and my dad is an artist and he was an art teacher And so I thought in addition to my career in makeup artistry and hairstyling, I was also going to be an artist of some kind. And I actually went to art school and something that I learned there very quickly was that I did not have the chops to be an artist like all of my fellow students. I went to School of Visual Arts. When you're there with the very best artists from schools around the country, high schools around the country, I learned very quickly that I didn't have it to kind of hang with these folks. But what I did learn is that I had creativity in spades. And so it was a really important lesson to learn that early because thankfully I didn't try to pursue a career as an artist. That would have been really disappointing. But that creativity is something that I've carried with me my whole career. And so that was a really, really important early lesson for me. I think that's great. So you stalk the people at Kiehl's, mm-hmm. but then first you used your artistic skills at the counter, at the side. Yeah, and being a makeup artist and making makeup. So you're a different kind of artist. Yes, absolutely. You stalked the people at Kiehl's, and then what did you end up doing once you started working there? Kiehl's was an interesting place, and this is before the L'Oreal buyout. So it was, I believe, third or fourth generation at that point, same family, And it was a very entrepreneurial space, actually, because it was a family-owned company and it was growing like wildfire. And so there were a lot of opportunities for those of us who were working there and kind of had our eyes open and thought, oh, maybe I can take over this part of the business or help them with this. And so I brought my custom blending skills to Kiehl's. They allowed me to go to the factory and design lipsticks and lip glosses for them. And so what a cool experience was that? That was amazing. And then I also noticed that they had a mail order department. We didn't even have toll-free numbers at that point. You know, we would take the orders on computers, but there was no internet then. And so I thought, let me help them run this part of their business because it was getting a little bit hectic and crazy. And they were so lovely that they just said, go right ahead, go for it. And so I created the Department of Catalog Services. I was the director and I was maybe 22 at the time and created a training protocol and a manual and got everybody up to speed with getting orders placed over the phone. But also what was interesting about Kiehl's at the time is that, you know, it's a Third Avenue store. It was very democratic there. Like we all did everything. We all cleaned the bathrooms. We all wrote labels. We all made samples. We all worked at the counter. And so me kind of taking these departures was a little bit unusual. And others did similarly and found other kind of careers within the career at Kiehl's. And so it was a really 
cool experience to be there at that time. So what did you find most challenging about that work? The pace was punishing at times, you know, you'd go in on a day around the holidays and five minutes after the store opened, it was literally a sea of people and that sea never thinned the entire day. And so it was very long hours, very hard work. The expectations were high. We needed to know everything about all of the products, speak with authority. The customer service was expected to be stellar. So all the things that you see in a Kiehl's store now, those things were all expected of us then. There was a real culture there of that. And that was hard for someone in their early 20s to really do well in that environment. And so I would say that the most rewarding thing about that experience is what I learned about myself, is that I can handle a lot. I can handle a store full of people. I can handle that responsibility and also being proactive and looking for opportunities within my workplace. And so it was challenging, but also really educational at the same time. So you were an entrepreneur, like inside of Kiehl's, you were testing out your entrepreneurial skills, and then you became an entrepreneur. I did. So a few years into my time at Kiehl's, another former Visage employee and I, who also worked at Kiehl's, we just started thinking about everything that we learned at Visage and how special it was. And so we thought, let's create a company. Let's do our own business. I mean, I can't even imagine. I think back to that time and I'm just like, my God, we had balls, you know, to do this. And so what was great about Kiehl's is that we worked really hard, but we were very well compensated for our work. And so we saved our tax returns and bonuses. And with another partner who worked in an art gallery, we for two years, we each saved $25,000. So we had $75,000. And that's how we started our company, Three Custom Color Specialists in the mid 90s. Wow. I believe I was at L at the time of your launch. And I remember how groundbreaking that brand was too. So for our audience who may not be familiar with the brand, could you tell us what made Three Custom Color so special? Sure. And thank you. It's something that I'm very, very proud of. But I will say, obviously, we were not reinventing the wheel. You know, Visage had already done it and Prescriptives was trying to do it. And so we didn't invent the idea. But what we did was to create, I think, a really beautiful place of ultimately after we stopped making lipsticks in our kitchens. We had a lab in the Flatiron District where consumers could come and consult with us and we could go through their makeup bags and let them know what we felt was working and not working and custom make the perfect eyebrow powder shade or the lip gloss and reproduce their favorite discontinued lipsticks. And then we also had ready-made colors as well that we sold to stores like Sephora and sold them all around the world, actually. And what was special about that end of the business is that it was really important to us to have colors that suited every woman. And that was new at the time. You know, Mac was just coming up. Bobby Brown was dabbling in that a bit as well. But it was unusual to have as many concealer colors as we had, as many blush colors as we had. And we were very lucky to be able to do that because we made everything by hand. So we weren't holding all this inventory. Like a lot of brands really struggle then and now, of course, holding all that inventory is very hard if you're small, but we just would make it by hand. You know, the darkest foundation that we had, we could just make it if we sold it. And so it was a pretty cool way to have that many colors, but also not worry about all of that inventory. As a newly minted entrepreneur with two partners, 
What was the learning curve like? It was constant. (laughs) It was constant (laughs) and very uphill, but really exciting. It's like that time in your life where you're learning and growing. And we did well. The media, thanks to people like you, they're very kind to us. We were good at creating relationships that lasted with the media. We created relationships with makeup artists. So they would come in if they had a Broadway play they were working on or a celebrity client, we would custom make products for them. We would partner with makeup artists in a variety of ways, creating unique things for them and magazines as well. And we had one of the first beauty websites. And we thought that it was really important to be online when it was, you know, like what, (laughs) you know? And so that was really, I think, looking back, really forward thinking at the time. We also joined forces with other independent brands. And at one point we're in four different Nordstrom doors with this beauty conglomerate, because as you know, it's so hard to have a counter at a large beauty department, like a Nordstrom, for instance, as a small brand. And so we were always looking for ways to do it and do it right. It was also the internet boom. So we sold to all the new cool beauty websites that were opening up. And then of course there was the crash after that. So we barely survived that one, but we learned a lot along the way and really learned a lot about PR because that's so important, obviously for a small brand and social media wasn't around then. So it would be fun to kind of try it again, obviously with the world of social media now. Were you writing as part of your job then? Yes. And I wrote at Kiehl's as well. And so I helped write the catalog, for instance. And I also served as the owner's secretary for a while. And she's a beautiful, beautiful writer. And I learned so much from her and then took those skills and recreated them at Three Custom Color. And we collaboratively wrote, but I did a lot of the main drafts of the press releases and the product descriptions and all of that. And so writing is something that I loved then. And as a kid, I wrote poetry and short stories and things like that. So it's always been a part of who I am. So after more than a decade at Three Custom Color, you went on to just consult as a product development person, right? Mm-hmm. So what was different about that? Well, that was an interesting time because at Three Custom Color, I felt like I had hit a wall professionally. I felt like I had done everything I could do for the business. And so I did leave and I thought that I was going to work at a Lauder or L'Oreal owned brand and corporate beauty and didn't really know what I was going to do, if I was going to be in marketing or PR or product development. And I was also trying to keep food on the table at the time as well. So I thought, let me see what I can do in terms of offering product development services for other brands. And then also copywriting. I mean, when you leave a job, you just kind of figure it out as you go. So I really enjoyed the product development aspect of it. You know, the collaboration, creating products from the ground up, getting dirty in the lab. I love all of that. But I couldn't figure out at the time how to really make a career out of that. And so I did lean more on the writing because there were just more opportunities for me there. That's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast, because I think a lot of people don't know the avenues. It's like there's no next in beauty, like next in fashion, like kind of show where you can kind of watch. And in beauty, there are so many avenues that you can explore. There is the only way to know about them is to hear people's stories. That's one of my goals. So hearing that it was kind of unclear for you, even though you had done product development for a number of years, what the path was, it's sobering in a lot of ways. I think I learned a very important lesson at that time where I had this 
idea of where I was going. And people were kind enough to see me and interview with me, but literally no one could figure out what to do with me. And I was like, well, I could work in product development. I could do all these things. And I've worn all these hats. Wearing all those hats and working for a Lauder-owned brand or a L'Oreal-owned brand is very tough. The folks who I was interviewing with were just like, I don't see you in the lab. You're not back of house. You're front of house. And we don't have anything that's really for someone with your skills. And it was sobering, to use your word, to hear that. But I had to listen to that and understand, okay, these people who I'm talking to see something that I don't see. So sometimes I think it's important to hear what other people are telling you and get out of your own way. And had I not done that, I would have been just continuously frustrated. But instead, I tried to hear what people were saying and just tried to see where the opportunities were naturally taking me and presenting themselves. So that was a very organic process after a while. And that's where I just did more and more freelance writing and then more opportunities came. And that's how I ended up at Retail Me Not, which is a coupon site, you know, not in beauty at all, but they were looking for someone to write for their blog and do budget-friendly content. And I'd been doing a little bit of that on a freelance basis anyway. And so that just happened naturally. And so had I not gotten out of my own way, I don't know where I'd be right now. Right. And I think that's important. I think those people who did speak with you, though, were a little short-sighted because now as we think of entrepreneurs inside corporations, you need to have multiple skill sets and wear a lot of hats. But back then, things were siloed and people didn't know how to see beyond the silo. And now as they break the walls down, you need to know more things. And people that are siloed are challenged because they don't know more than the thing that they have been doing all their lives. But I do think that your evolution is really interesting because one thing they were right about is you're a front of house person. You're a great on air person. Thank you. And that's how it translated for you. So you had been customer facing in your beauty roles and it sort of shifted into shopping, which is still kind of interrelated to what you've been doing your whole life (laughs) since your mother's door. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I look back now and I can see the thread, but when you're in it, it's so hard to see it. And from writing on a freelance basis for We Tell Me Not, and then I see that they're doing TV segments and things like that. And I'm like, wait, what's happening over here, you know, and as a freelancer, you got to keep your eyes open and look for that white space, those opportunities. And so I raised my hand and I said, I know you guys are doing media, like I'm media trained from having been one of the spokespeople for my own brand. If you need help, you know, I'd love to jump in. And it turned out that they were looking to create a spokesperson role at Retail Me Not, which is pretty rare. And so I was put forward for that. They kind of threw me into a couple of media opportunities to see how I would do, which was terrifying. But I got that position. And that was actually my first real corporate job. But it was a role that had never been there before. And so it was actually very entrepreneurial in itself. Right. You had been media trained, but doing it for your job versus doing it for hit to promote your brand. What are the differences there? What was working for Retail Me Not as a spokesperson, like versus three custom color as one of the founders? Sure. And that's a great question because when you're speaking on behalf of your own brand, you are the ambassador of something that you created. 
And so it comes naturally to you, you know it inside and out. I was meeting with beauty editors all the time, and then I just go on the news and talk about this. I mean, the biggest stretch there was for when we did QVC a few times, and that was like hard and stressful and, and all of that, because like the whole future of your business is just like hanging on that eight minutes on QVC. But every tell me not, I and the CEO were the two faces of the brand. And that's a lot. So I was under marketing and PR. So I was fielding data. I was writing press releases. I was doing all of that. But then I was also the face of all of that stuff. And so it was fun to kind of mine the data and find the interesting points, create the story. You know, and I had a team and we had a PR firm and it was a whole new thing for me. There was like money to spend. We would do integrations on Steve Harvey and Rachel Ray. And like, it was very big, but I was on TV several times a week at times. And that was a big, big change. And so it just became like forward facing so much that you do get used to it, but it's a lot to take on. It is. That was a big pivot for you. And now you're working for yourself and you, I guess, through that became like an on-air shopping retail expert. Yeah. I mean, that was an incredible education at Retail Me Not. And had I not done that, I don't think I could do what I do now. I needed that experience of just understanding how the media works for this kind of content. But I think when I was laid off from Retail Me Not in 2015, you know, I thought a lot about that experience. And I realized that I don't play well with others <laughs> in sort of a corporate environment. Like I have too many ideas and it's, you have to be very, very collaborative and a real team player in, in an environment like that. And I am a team player, but I also like to be heard. <laughs> and that's hard when you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And looking back throughout my life, I've always seen like, that's a very continuous thread as well, where like on every report card when I was growing up, it's like she has problems with authority. And it's like, I don't know if that's totally accurate. I'm always respectful, but I also want to understand why is it that we're doing this project? Why are we studying this instead of that? And so that was me always asking the questions. And then throughout my professional life, I've always done that. And so when I was laid off, I realized that it was really the right thing that I really needed to do this on my own. And I somehow had enough confidence to do it on my own. And part of that was because when I was laid off, I was given a wonderful runway. I had a financial cushion of severance, you know, and I stayed on on contracts. So I was just doing work for them part time, but I was able to kind of feel out the space in general and how I could work within that space and earn within that space. And it was a really important time. So by then, the beginning of 2016, I was on my own completely. And I've been on my own ever since, and I wouldn't change it for the world. How many segments do you do, let's say, in a month now? It depends on the month. Like right now is actually usually my ramp up for holiday. And so it's kind of quiet. I may do a little bit of like early holiday shopping segments, but it really kicks into high gear in early November. Because of what's happening with the supply chain issues around the world right now, I am flat out busy. So I've done four segments this week already and five last week and I have three more next week. So I am really, really busy. So that's more typical for a busy time. And then sometimes I don't have any segments. 
And then I have time for podcasts and IG lives and things like that, which are a lot more fun and casual. And so there is an ebb and flow to it. And during the lower, slower times when I'm not on TV, I'm writing for my blog. I write for other publications like MarketWatch and MSN.com. And so I'm always doing something, (laughs) but it's not always TV. Right. What's your secret to booking all these appearances? Do people know you at this point or are you intentional about connecting with people? So some of those relationships came from Retail Me Not. So I was really fortunate to make strong relationships in my time there. And then there was like a brief period where I really had to prove myself again and separate myself from the brand. I think I was interviewing potential managers at the time. I wasn't sure how I wanted to run my business. And I was like, do I need a manager? I don't know. So I met someone who said something to me that was very instructive. He asked me, who are you without Retail Me Not? You know, he was being the devil's advocate. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure, but I think I'm a lot without Retail Me Not. Like, I think I'm going to be fine. I don't know if he was so sure. We didn't end up working together because he had a model that I was not a fan of. So I just decided to go on my own with a more casual manager relationship and kind of just messed around until I could figure out what worked for me. But to answer your question in sort of, sorry, a long-winded way, was that I had some relationships in place. And then if you do your job on social media, people do come to you. People come to me. And then I also proactively pitch. I have a beautiful whisper network of other experts and publicists who I talked to and a colleague just sent me a list of some contacts that I didn't have. So I'll add them to my outreach. And so it's constantly building, grooming, creating those relationships. And then producers move. They go from one to the next. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it's not such a good thing. But maintaining those relationships no matter what is, I would say, like if there's one thing that I learned everyone is equally as important all the time. So whether you're at Elle Magazine or you are somewhere else, like you're equally as important to me. And I hope that I'm as equally as important to you because those relationships, I have to say, are what has kept me going and busy and working and successful this whole time. I think that's invaluable advice. I think people get lost in titles and connections. After I left L after eight years, that was the first time I realized I was only valuable to certain people when I was there. Then I was able to look at it in perspective. No, you're an industry acquaintance and not a friend. Not that I dislike you less. It's just where you are in my life needs to be clarified so that as I came in and out of the industry all those times, I was better able to handle if I wasn't at a place where they thought it was desirable, the way that they interacted with me would change. And I was okay with that. Talk to me about preparation. How do you prepare for a segment? So it depends on the segment. I do a lot of kind of talking head segments where I'm just chatting with someone almost like this. And the first thing is writing the segment for the producer. If anyone was looking for advice about how to be useful, you write the segment for them. Whether they're going to use it verbatim or not, it's always appreciated. And that's part of my preparation as well. So it helps me clarify what it is that I want to talk about. If I have clients who I'm going to mention in that segment, it helps me figure out where that client works or if they don't work. 
really figuring out the direction. So once I've written the talking points and I go back and forth with the producer and we decide what it is, like what the questions are going to be, I prep a lot. I go through those questions over and over and over again, because I think you can't prepare enough because you never know what's going to happen. You know, you think I've done this thousands of times, but every once in a while, my mind goes blank or with COVID doing everything virtually. How many times have I had technical issues where suddenly they can't hear you and you have to dial in on your phone instead and you're like hustling around and then suddenly your mind goes blank and you can't remember (laughs) what it is that you're supposed to be doing. You know, that happens. And so the more you prep, the more those words find a home in your brain and then you're ready. If I have products on the table, that's another kind of level of preparation. I actually act out the segments. I sit behind the table and I go through it. And working from home makes it so much easier, obviously. I actually am going into the studio for the first time on Monday. I'm doing the Today Show and I'm a little like, oh my God, <laughs> Like, what's that going to be like? Because I haven't been in the studio in so long. But yeah, so to answer your question, prep is really, really crucial. And it's important, no matter how experienced you are, to prepare and don't ever get cocky and think you can do it on the fly. You've also co-founded a business that helps other people perfect their messaging. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it's called One Take Media Coaching. And this is something that a colleague of mine who we should be competitors, she's on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. There are really only a few shopping experts like she and I. So we should kind of be at each other's throats, I think. But instead, we share information, we help each other. And we thought there's so much that we know that we could share with other people. And at Retail Me Not, I was also fortunate enough, in addition to doing the spokesperson work, I was able to produce a lot of media tours and things for other executives when they wanted to put another face forward for something. And so I media coached many senior level executives there. And thinking back on that time, I really enjoyed that work. I mean, it's very personal. It's very intimate. So she and I decided to create this very casual kind of relationship, coming up with the name and the logo and the website. And that was definitely a business forming exercise that you would do. But now we just have it where we have that place where people can go and learn more about what we do. But she has her clients. I have my clients. We work mostly on referral And I train everyone from CEOs who are highly experienced to aspiring honor experts who know nothing about the space. I prep people for their press junkets. I help people with their pitches. And it's sort of an extension of what I already do, but I get to learn about other people's pain points and other people's businesses. And it's really, really fascinating. I mean, unfortunately, I can't take on any clients going into holiday. I'm just like, no more media coaching. Like my last client was just the other day and I'm kind of shutting down until Christmas is over. And then I'd like to kind of get up and running again, because it is something that I really love and I find it to be very gratifying. And so I kind of think like at some point, maybe I'll just pivot into that, you know, and have this other career. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. To me, it seems that you perfected the pivot, but was it intentional or did it just happen for you? I think it's that I'm good at finding the white space in things. So I see an opportunity, I see an opening. And if it's something that I feel like I can fill, I then start making moves to make that happen. I'm very patient. And I think that that's something that if you're going to survive in this world professionally, 
patience is so crucial because sometimes things take a long time. You know, you have to plant the seed and sorry for the cliche, but like, you know, you plant the seed and you have to wait and put that energy out there into the world and create relationships. And so I'm always working on something. And I would say I'm not successful at everything. (laughs) You know, you try something and you realize like, oh, I'm not great at YouTube. Although you'd think, you know, I'm on TV all the time. I should have a successful YouTube channel. I do not. And so I'm not resonating on YouTube, but I do well on Instagram. And like, I have my blog and my site and, you know, so finding those opportunities trying them out a little bit, seeing what works. And I think that's what pivoting is all about is being able to sit in quiet and look at your life and look at your career and say like, am I good here or what am I going to do? And I also just think too, like if you're at a place where you feel like you're successful, you should never be complacent in that success because something could change tomorrow where suddenly no one wants a 53-year-old biracial, gray-haired, on-air expert anymore. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? And so right now, obviously, and with the social unrest that was going on last year, like it was clear that people wanted a woman of color on air. And my business grew 35% during COVID. And I do not take that for granted, but it's also kind of a strange feeling knowing, like, I know what happened. Like, I know why people are hiring me versus my Caucasian colleague. I know that. And so what I'm trying to do with that in mind is to make it clear that a company or hiring manager should never hesitate to hire a woman of color because she's going to kick ass. Like that's kind of my drive behind that. Finally, in this last section of the podcast, I want to leave our listeners with some concrete steps on where to begin. So let's go into our starting five that takeaway tips from our guests. What are five things that a listener should consider if they're thinking about pivoting their career? Okay. So I love this question. So I gave this some thought. So number one is know that nothing has to be permanent. And this reminded me, I spoke to a friend the other day and she is miserable at her job. And I'm trying to explain to her, you don't have to stay there. If you're miserable, it's time to think about making a move. You are not trapped. Number two, and when you're thinking of making a move, think about things that you're both good at, but also that you'll enjoy because this could be for the long haul. So you don't want to be miserable. Number three, give yourself a lot of runway. Like I was just saying, you want to give yourself some time. So ideally, if you are going to leave a job, think about staying where you are for a little while you know, so you have that security and work quietly and diligently towards your pivot because you don't want to be doing this in panic mode, of course. Number four, be consistent. So I think where a lot of people fail is that they go at something guns blazing and there's no way that that's sustainable. So they have to think about what are the things can I do? Can I post on Instagram three times a week, five times a week, one time a week? Can I do YouTube? Can I do TikTok? Whatever it is, be realistic and know that you have to do it for the long haul. And then number five, be open to feedback. Like I was saying when I was interviewing after I left my beauty business, be open to what other people have to say and also be willing, and this is kind of a two-parter, be willing to ask for help. Use your network, groom your network, grow your network, and it will serve you in the long run and you will serve it. Those are some amazing tips. Amazing. And I think 
for those of us who've been around for a while, we always hear the word reinvention, but a reinvention is also a pivot. So those tips work at every stage of your career when you're thinking about doing something different. And, you know, people have often criticized millennials and Gen Z for changing often, but I think we can learn a lot from those pivots. When you realize something doesn't work, why are you sticking around? Yeah, I agree. There's no reason why you should be crying in the bathroom at work. (laughs) That's the word. (laughs) How can people get in touch with you, follow you, give us your social handles and your website? Sure. So I'm True Trey just about everywhere. So truetray.com and then True Trey on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find our media coaching business at onetakemedia.biz if you're interested in that. And I would love to hear from folks and hear what they thought about our conversation too. I mean, any feedback, I'd love to hear it. And we have to say True Trey. Trey is spelled T-R-A-E. Thank you. I know I should have said that. <laughs> can't thank you enough for this conversation. It was really, really great. Made me think differently about pivoting because I am one of those people that guns are blazing and then gets bored really quickly. So, Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's such a thing. It's such a thing to do. Like That's why I think low and slow is better. Low and slow. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. I loved all your questions and you did so much research ahead of time and I really appreciated that. So it was a joy to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. That's our show for today. If you have questions about where to start in your beauty career, drop us a line at hello at beautybizcamp.com. Remember, there are many roads to success, but each of them requires you to start. So take that step forward today. See you next time.